Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. In 1961, in the Bavarian Alps of West Germany, Christian Gerhardt's writer was born. His mother was a seamstress and his father a house painter. Growing up, Chris was a skinny kid who didn't fit in. So he surrounded himself with a fantasy world. One where he pretended to be anyone he chose. Vanity Fair describes how, on a train trip, he met a family from the U.S. They found him charming and invited him to look them up if he ever visited the U.S. Well, in 1978, at the age of 17, Chris took them up on their offer and showed up unannounced at their home in Meriden, Connecticut. He stayed with them for a short time before moving in with the Savio family. Chris enrolled in the local high school where he polished his appearance and perfected his English. His hair was sandy brown and long. He wore white sunglasses and tight European clothing. Chris has slipped into his fantasy world, one where menial tasks were beneath him. Although he was a guest sleeping on the family's couch, he expected breakfast to be made for him and his laundry done. It didn't take long for the Savio family to decide they were not his hired help and kicked him out. He changed his name to Chris Gearhart and studied film at the University of Wisconsin. But Chris's time as a visitor in the U.S. was coming to an end. So he set out to find a woman to marry so that he could get his green card. That woman was Amy. ABC News reported that she and Chris married at a courthouse in 1981. The day after, Chris left and she never saw him again. Chris quit university and moved to Los Angeles and changed his name again, calling himself Christopher Chichester, related to Francis Chichester, a British man who set a record sailing around the world by himself and was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. Chris became adept on how to segue his way into the local social scene. He chose nearby San Marino, a wealthy suburb. There he attended the most prestigious Church of Our Savior, where his impeccable manners and dress code ingratiated him to the elderly parishioners of high society. CBC News reported that he handed out business cards with a crest and the title 13th Baronet of Chichester. Chris had mastered the look of a young 
rich jet setter. Although he looked a little nerdy, he pulled it off with his hair and chic sunglasses. But it was more about his presence. A royal attitude reflected in his stiff facial expressions, with his nose turned up slightly, pursed lips, and confident stare. Through the church, Chris met wealthy divorcee, Ruth Sohues, who went by the name Dee Dee. At 65, she had a bit of an issue with alcohol and was a recluse. She owned a home in an upscale suburb with a small guest house. And although it was illegal to rent it out, she was starting to run low on money and rented it to Chris with the understanding it would be their little secret. Soon he was attending business clubs and social events. Chris had immersed himself in many topics and could speak fluently about politics, business, and of course royalty. Because now in his fantasy, he had evolved into being descended from Lord Mountbatten and British royalty. But 21-year-old Chris hadn't achieved anything other than becoming very good at impersonating others. He drove around town in his beat-up Datsun, lastered with post-it notes, with dreams of working in the film industry. He attended the University of Southern California, and although he alluded to be a student, he wasn't. Rather, he spent his days at the campus library and walked around with a screenplay tucked under his arm while he mingled with the students. Soon an event would happen that would disrupt Chris's posh arrangement. Dee Dee's adopted son John and his girlfriend Linda were having hard times financially and moved in with Dee Dee into the main house with their four cats. In their 20s, John had a low-level job in computer programming and Linda worked at a bookstore and was an aspiring artist. He was geeky with brown hair and brown eyes and often wore jeans and a flannel shirt. Linda was more outgoing with a stocky build and flaming red hair. John was five foot six and Linda at six feet towered over him. But it didn't seem to matter. The couple were in love. They got married in 1983 and after living with his mother for another two years, they made plans to move out on their own. In January 1985, Linda placed her art in an art show and sold a few pieces. The couple's finances were turning around and they bought a pickup truck. They told friends that they were planning to move out of John's mother's house soon, but that they'd stay close by due to her age. But within a few weeks, their plans changed. John and Linda told friends John had landed an important job with the U.S. government, but that it was top secret and that they would be leaving for New York City immediately, but would return in a few weeks to pack up their things. At the bookstore, Linda had always been a diligent and reliable employee. She gave her boss notice that she would be leaving. 
Before she left, her boss asked her to open the store for a few days. But when she stopped by, she was dismayed to see it was closed. And wonder how Linda could leave her in such a lurch like that. John and Linda put their cats in a kennel and disappeared. It's not known exactly what happened. Perhaps John, with his computer skills, had learned of the imposter staying in the guest house. Or perhaps he was concerned Chris would clean out what money his mother had left. But what we do know is Chris attacked John and hit him on the head with a heavy object, causing him to lose consciousness. He stabbed John six times, four in the back and two near his left elbow. Chris also murdered Linda. He dismembered John, placing his head inside a plastic bag from the University of Wisconsin. Then he placed it inside a second plastic bag from the University of California. He placed John's torso and arms, still wearing his flannel shirt, into a large plastic bag. He wrapped his jeans in cellophane and placed his body in a large fiberglass container along with the plastic bags. In the backyard, hidden from the main house, Chris dug a hole. He threw John's socks and shoes in, then placed the container on top. He poured shovel after shovel of dirt into the homemade grave. Weeks later, when Chris had a friend over, she asked about the newly dug dirt, and Chris replied that he was having plumbing problems. Chris approached another friend and asked how he could dispose of a few drums containing chemicals. His friend gave him a few options, assuming they were photography chemicals, related to his studies at the university. A couple weeks later, Chris tried to sell an oriental rug to an acquaintance. When his wife took a look, she noticed small spots of blood and pointed it out to Chris. He didn't deny it, but merely rolled it up and put it back in the truck. Days later, a neighbor noticed a foul smell coming from the guest house and black smoke pouring from the chimney, and called Chris to complain. He replied that he was burning carpet, to which the neighbor responded, they may have to call the fire department. Ten minutes later, Chris had put out the fire. Weeks later, Linda's sister discovered their cats had not been picked up from the kennel and knew something was wrong. Linda loved her cats and would never abandon them. She retrieved the cats and filed a missing persons report on April 8th. It had been two months since John and Linda were last seen. Police immediately did a record search on John and Linda, but didn't find anything suspicious. On April 16th, an officer visited Dee Dee's property and knocked on the door of the guest house. Chris answered, standing there completely nude. 
When the officer requested he get dressed, he declined. He told the officer his last name is Chichester. However, when the officer returned to the office, he ran Chris's driver's license number and discovered he was also known as Christian Gerhardt's writer. Then a strange thing happened. Dee Dee received a postcard from Linda, postmarked April 29th. It had been mailed from France. The short message on the back said, Mom, I think we need a geography lesson, but not too bad. Linda and John. Dee Dee interpreted this to mean they had gone to France instead of New York. But how? Linda didn't have a passport. Her friend Sue and her ex-boss Lydia also received postcards. They thought the short message was odd, considering Linda hadn't mentioned traveling to Europe, nor did she have the financial means. In May, Chris returned a chainsaw he'd borrowed from a neighbor back in January and told his hairstylist that a family member had died and he had to go back to England to take care of their estate. He left Dee Dee's guest house, never to return. In July, the officer that was investigating John and Linda's disappearance ran another check on their truck and found it was still registered to them. Dee Dee kept John and Linda's room intact waiting for them to walk back in. John, who was diabetic, had left his insulin kit behind, along with most of their possessions. But by November, when they hadn't returned, she felt her son had abandoned her and sold her home. After leaving Dee Dee's, Chris moved to Connecticut, changed his name to Chris Crow, and laid low for a few years. The officer who investigated John and Linda's disappearance never forgot them. Three years later, in 1988, he was promoted to detective and reopened the cold case. He ran a check on their truck and discovered it was now associated with someone by the name of Bishop in Greenwich, Connecticut. He contacted the local police department there and asked them to reach out to the Bishop family. When a detective showed up at the Bishop's home, Mr. Bishop, who was also named Chris, told the detective that it belonged to his friend Chris Crow and provided him with his address. Later over the phone, Chris Bishop told Chris, What's going on? Is a detective just showed up at my house and said, you're wanted for a missing person investigation. Who are you really? Chris stammered, I gotta go, and hung up. Chris Bishop never heard from Chris again. The detective learned about a post office box registered to Chris Crow, and from that, he was able to identify where Chris worked in Manhattan. He called his employer who made arrangements for Chris to come to the office. And to his surprise, the detective would be waiting. But Chris must have had a sixth sense and never showed up. 
His boss then provided three phone numbers he had for Chris. One of them belonged to his girlfriend, Miko Manaby. The detective called Miko. She told him Chris wasn't with her at her apartment. Later, when Chris found out, he told her that the detective was not a real police officer and that he and his parents' lives were in danger. Chris changed his appearance, switched his hair color, and wore contact lenses. He shredded the couple's garbage and put everything in Miko's name. In 1989, Chris changed his name again. He'd taken his fantasy game up a notch. Now he called himself Clark Rockefeller. A name that he discovered opened up doors without question. Miko and Chris's relationship lasted five years until they broke up in 1994. It didn't take Chris long before he moved on and found his next victim. Sandra Boss was studying towards her MBA at Harvard Business School when she was swept off her feet by the aristocrat. They married in 1995. She had left the paperwork up to Chris, but to hide his tracks, he never registered their marriage. In 2002, the couple had a young daughter who he lovingly nicknamed Snooks. Back in San Marino, California, the couple who had bought Dee Dee's home nine years earlier decided to install a pool. Their contractor dug down a few feet with a bobcat when the bucket hit a large fiberglass container. Inside, the operator could see several trash bags. He pulled one out and poked it with a piece of rebar and recoiled in horror. Staring back at him was the skull of John. The coroner's office identified six holes in John's flannel shirt caused by knife wounds. And a forensic analysis of the guest house using luminol revealed four large blood stains on the slab floor. Three of them contained white marks as if someone had cleaned up the blood. The traces were too degraded for DNA tests, and because John was adopted, the DNA from his remains could not be compared to a relative. Detectives looked back at their original investigation and their interview with Chris. He was now a person of interest in the cold case, but Chris was nowhere to be found. Chris and Sandra were now living in Boston, but their marriage was not a happy one. Chris never held a job for long, and she paid all the bills. In 2007, after 11 years of marriage, she filed for divorce. A judge granted Sandra custody of Snooks. Chris did not want Sandra delving into his past, so he quickly agreed to a settlement of $800,000 and three eight-hour supervised visits each year with his daughter. On July 27, 2008, Chris was enjoying one of those visits when he decided to abduct her. 
He hired a limo to pick them up, and when he and Snooks climbed in, the social worker supervising the visit began to follow. Chris ordered the driver to step on the gas. The car dragged the social worker several yards before he was forced to let go and fell to the pavement. Within minutes, Chris told the driver to stop. He grabbed his daughter and hailed a taxi. He called a friend and conned her into meeting him and giving them a ride to New York. But when they got stuck in traffic, Chris took his daughter and fled. The FBI were brought in. They quickly learned that Chris had enjoyed a glass of wine at a friend's the night before and that the friend hadn't washed the glass. They retrieved it and ran the fingerprints. That's when they discovered Chris's true identity. Snook's kidnapping was featured on the news. A real estate agent recognized Chris's photo and contacted the FBI. He told them he just sold Chris a house in Baltimore. At 1 a.m., investigators surrounded the house. They learned that Chris owned a rundown catamaran that he kept at a local marina. They had the manager phone Chris to say his boat was taking on water. When Chris walked out of the house, investigators were able to arrest him without endangering his daughter. In 2009, Chris was convicted of parental kidnapping and sentenced to four to five years, along with two to three years for assault. Now with Chris behind bars, detectives in California went to work to have him charged before he became a free man. In 2011, they located a birth sibling of John's and his remains were positively identified. They had the plastic bags from the universities Chris attended. The stamps on the three postcards were analyzed and did not contain Linda's DNA, nor did they contain Chris's. Although much of the evidence was circumstantial, it was enough. Chris was extradited to California and charged with the first-degree murder of John. In 2013, 52-year-old Chris went on trial in Los Angeles. As the verdict was read, he stood silent. It took a jury only a day to find him guilty. Chris was sentenced to 27 years to life. It took 28 years to get justice for John and Linda. Sadly, Dee Dee passed away, still believing her only son had abandoned her. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Randall Lee Smith. Two friends hiked along the Appalachian Mountains, a trek to raise money for charity. They arrived at the Wapiti Shelter for the night but they weren't alone. Hiding in the shadows, Randall's steps were silent and deadly. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com 
and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Fastlane Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>